John tells us at the end of his gospel that he wrote the gospel and placed the things that are in his gospel that we might believe. And, and in essence, he said, I could have written a whole lot more and the libraries couldn't have hold it at all that Jesus said and did. In essence, this is enough for you to have faith. So my preliminary remark before we look at this is, oftentimes we have a saying that most, if not all of us believers have said at one time or another or frequently, God is in control. But oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes we say God is in control because at that point in time, we have no clue what he's doing. Because quite frankly, we want to be in control. And how do I do, know that? Because I know how my prayer life is. I know how your prayer life is. We give God his instructions. God, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And when he doesn't do X, Y, and Z, we then say, well, God is in control. I don't know. So this passage I want you to take a look at and think about your faith in God and God really being in control. And so in John chapter 4, starting with verse 46, it says this, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now I want you to see a couple things. Number one, this royal um, person heard about Jesus, heard about what he had done in Judea and other places, how he had healed, and that his son was at the point of death, so he took a risk. That risk is Jesus can do something. So he goes to Jesus because Jesus is now in Galilee. He's no longer in Judea, so he's closer. But if you remember, Jesus is an itinerant rabbi. What does that mean? He travels around. He didn't set up a church in Cana and said, y'all come, we're having a revival today. He would preach and teach in that town and move to a different town or sometimes out in the countryside. So this royal official took a chance that he might even locate Jesus. Because Jesus is on the move. He's also taking a chance because Jesus might say no. We would never think of that, but that's still a chance. Now, a lot of the commentators say that this guy was probably a centurion. I totally disagree. Why? Because first off, a centurion is not a royal official. He's a commander of a hundred in a Roman legion. It's not royal, it's the army. That's not his job. Second, they think, well, it's because there is some similar narratives of Jesus healing, and therefore this must be one of those. The fact pattern, for those of you who are lawyers, doesn't fit. Because in the centurion's case, Friends come to Jesus to have Jesus go to the centurion's son. Jesus is willing to go to the centurion's son. And then the centurion sends word 
I'm not worthy for you to come. You can say the word and heal. So the fact pattern is totally different. Others say that this royal official probably came from Herod Antipas, or Antipater depends upon different ways that people pronounce it. Um, and they say that he probably was working as an official in his court. And I don't think so. It's possible, but I don't think so. And why don't I think so? Because Herod Antipas hated John the baptizer. And Jesus was also his cousin, and they were both doing a similar ministry. If it was this guy who was working in this royal court, I don't think John would have left that out. That would have been a significant aspect that Jesus is going to do something in a royal capacity to people who hate him. But it's possible he could have just left it out. But I think he's a, I think he's a representative from the Roman Empire. He is a noble official. He's been given official. So he comes to Jesus and says to him, and he was imploring him, come down and heal my son, for he is at the point of death. His request, his prayer request, if you might say, is I need you to come to where my son is and heal him. Kind of like us. We say, Jesus, I need you to do this and this. It isn't Jesus, heal my son. It's Jesus, I need you to come to my place and heal my son. He gave him Jesus' marching orders. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? We give Jesus his marching orders. And you can understand, I mean, if your child's at the point of death, you're going to do whatever it takes to see that he gets healed. So we're imploring him. So Jesus the meek and mild person that he is and loves just everybody, responds and says this. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Oh, thanks, Jesus. I mean, that's not what I was expecting. What I was expecting is, sure, you have a need, I'll be right there. But Jesus' ministry, while he does heal the sick, and the blind and do all sorts and raise the dead and do all sorts of things. He doesn't do those things to do those things. He, do, he did those things to generate faith. And his observation is, unless I do things, you just won't believe. Now the you here is plural. He's not just picking on the royal official. He's picking on everybody who's there. Everybody who's around you, unless you see signs and wonders, you're simply not going to believe. It's not good enough that you see me. It's not good enough that you hear my teaching. It's not good enough that I've told you I am. But you've got to see signs and wonders. Excuse me. Now, the royal official could have had one or two responses. He could have said, oh, well, I tried and go back home. But I suspect if you had a son, a child that was close to death, that wouldn't deter you. His father's persistent. 49, the royal official said to him, sir, come down 
before my child dies. It may be true that all we want is to see signs and wonders, but what I want is for you to heal my son. That's what I want. You can accuse me of having bad motives. You can accuse me of not having faith or whatever, but I just want you to heal my son. Kind of reminds you of a parable that Jesus will teach later about the widow who is persistent before the judge. And a lot of times we'll pray, God, do such and such. And then God doesn't do it right away. We go, well, God's in control. And we go on. Sometimes it requires persistence in our prayer life to show God we care about the situation. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. Now the man has two choices. He can respond in faith and say, I'm going to go because my son is healed. Or he can say, no, that wasn't my prayer request. My prayer request was that you come with me and heal my son. I'm still after what it was that I've requested. But God, through Jesus, already gave him his request. He just didn't do it by the way he asked him. Because Jesus' power to heal is more than just location. Notice he didn't say, okay, well, it's your son's name. In what house in Capernaum are you dwelling? He simply says, because notice we his name isn't even given. It's your son is healed there in Capernaum. Didn't ask the address, didn't ask his name. He's just healed. I don't need to go. So the father, like I said, said, no, no, no. My request was that you come with me and heal my son. Or he could believe Jesus and leave. Which, if you will, takes great faith. Because what if the son wasn't healed? That he wasted all the time to get there and all the time to get back. And the only thing that would make his, the son dying more tragic is his father not being there when his son dies. But notice, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Oh, that we would believe what Jesus said and start off. It wasn't, my, it wasn't the entirety of my prayer request, but the essential part, my son being healed, that got done. Sometimes God does things in ways that we don't expect. You see, I'm sure he heard all the stories about Jesus being in Jerusalem and healing and doing all these great signs and wonders. He had enough faith to know if Jesus is there, Things get done. But he believed him. Instead of wasting Jesus' time and doubts, he heads off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. Confirmation that the miracle of the healing of his son so that he would not die took place at the very time Jesus said, your son lives. And he himself believed. Notice he believed Jesus. But then there was that confirmation. And sometimes we have just enough faith to believe Jesus, but then we doubt. But then Jesus healed his son, and he believed more. It's no wonder a lot of baby Christians who start out believing Jesus, but then don't continue in being with Jesus, and they stop believing. But this man, faith, building upon faith, that Jesus did what Jesus said he would do, and it was confirmed that Jesus did what he said he was going to do at the very hour Jesus said he was going to do it. So it confirmed his faith. <coughs> but notice, not only he himself believed, and his whole household. You see, the result of this man's faith by going to Jesus and believing when Jesus says, your son is healed, and heading off, he came to faith. But so did his whole household. And by that, it doesn't just mean his family. It means his slaves, his servants, and his family. Can you imagine the impact that you might have on your friends and family and relatives if you believed Jesus? You just believed him. Now I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble. It is very important for mothers to raise their children in the love and admonition of the Lord. The Bible is full of examples of where disciples were raised by their mother and grandmothers and how they were taught the scriptures. Paul tells of Timothy and others. And so I'm not denigrating mother's role. But it has been my observation if you want a family to believe in Jesus, the father needs to believe and act like it. I've seen a lot of families where a woman is raised in a Christian home and is a believer. And one of her requirements is that she marry a believer. But she starts dating a non-believer and falls in love. But she knows the commitments she made that he's got to be a believer. So what does he do? He plays the game. He attends church. That's not good enough. So he walks down the aisle and says, I'm a believer. I'll even go get dunked in your baptistry. And then she says, aha, you, you qualified as that. Never seen whether there's any fruit of repentance. Just that he did what the requirements were. They get married. And the vast, vast majority of the time, the family never darkens the doors of a church again. Oh, she might attend, and she might bring the kids. 
But the kids become, if you will, pygmies in their faith. Because dad doesn't seem to be all that interested. But when the father understands his role to lead and guide his family in faith, the children usually then take it seriously. So, moms, I'm not getting you off the hook and say, well, it's dad's fault, dad's problem. No, you still have the obligation of raising the children in the love and admonition of the Lord. It's just that your husband is going to be a little more effective at it. So he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out, out of Judea into Galilee. You see the second sign. It wasn't the second sign Jesus did, period. It's the second sign he did when he was in Galilee. The two interesting things about the two first two signs that he performs in Galilee are secret. Well, what do I mean by that? At the wedding of Cana, he didn't make a big deal about the fact that there was no wine and then he took some water and changed it into wine. The only people who knew that he did that was Jesus, his disciples, and the guys who put the water into the pots and then took the pots to the head waiter who said, this is great wine. And this one. Nobody saw Jesus heal him. Father believed, and the household saw the results of Jesus' healing. So you see, Jesus is consistent. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. So I'm going to do it, if you will, for the select few. Who believe? I'm going to close by again saying this, which will get me in trouble again. I know the intent of a lot of people. They'll say, like, faith can move mountains. Now the scripture says that if you have this faith of the side of a mustard seed that you can tell this mountain to move and it'll be moved. But faith doesn't move mountains. God does. When God says, speak and this mountain will move, and I believe it, that's when the mountain moves. I don't speak it to receive it. I speak it when he tells me to receive it, and then I say something. So instead of a t-shirt that says, Faith moves mountains. I'd rather see a t-shirt that says, God moves mountains, and I believe him. Mm-hmm. You see, the family didn't believe in the miracle. They believed in Jesus. Because they believed in Jesus, there was a miracle. Because as Jesus said, he isn't there to do miracles just to be doing miracles, but that you might believe. So the next time you ask Jesus something and he doesn't do it right away, maybe ask yourself two questions. Am I giving him marching orders? Or am I just saying, Jesus, help me? And the second question, God, even if you answered, will I believe more? 
And if I don't believe more, then don't bother answering. Because your signs and your wonders should be accompanied by faith. And all God's people said, 